This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. To learn from and to hear the good news that you have for all peoples on the earth. What you have given as a glimpse in the Old Testament now is freely revealed in the New Testament. So Father, we pray as we look into Acts 13 and 14 that you will engage our minds, you will transform our hearts and you will strengthen our hands that we can respond to you. Amen. Now just a week ago, a missionary friend working in a very difficult country, she wrote a prayer letter and um, let me read what she said, a snippet of it. She said this, Life is messy. People are messy. I'm messy. Attempts at his work are messy. But it's okay. His book is full of him working in a messy world, working amazing things in spite of that. Well, her letter goes on to say how her house was burned down, her favorite neighbor that she was trying to reach to has kind of have to move in a week's time, and all the uncertainties and all the plans that didn't seem to go the way that it looked like in the beginning. No, life can be messy business. Missions for God can be messy business. So what is crucial in all this messiness in life and in missions that we need to um, be aware of? And today's passage points to the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Today we are stepping into the first missionary journey of Saul, who will be known by his Greek name Paul, moving forward. We'll see how the gospel message shapes his missionary journey. We'll also see how the hearers of the message are called to respond to the message. So as we step into Acts 13 and 14, I'd like to invite you to be Paul's companion just for a short while, for the next half an hour, carrying three things with you in your missionary backpack. So if you have a backpack for missions, these are three things that I invite you to bring. First, bring your walking shoes uh, or whatever traveling medication that you like to bring. Uh, we'll be taking a fast walk through the whole of Paul's first missionary journey, taking note of the two key things that Paul and Barnabas are concerned of throughout this whole journey. And then bring your Bible along because we will look at the central message the missionaries carry, revealing God's greatest message for the whole world, for you and for me. And finally, bring your heart along because we will look at how the world responds to Paul, to the message, and also for us to respond to the message when we hear it. So to put it another way, the three things we will look at today is the journey, and then the message, and finally the response. So if you're ready, put on your walking shoes. Uh, it's time for a fast walk through the journey of Paul. And as a bonus, I've kind of included a map in your bulletin, and I've also put the, the big map here so that you can follow as we uh, walk with Paul so that no one gets lost or are left behind. So we begin um, the journey. In fact, we begin remembering from last Acts sermon, we ended in chapter 13, verse 1 to 3, where Paul and Barnabas, they were the leaders of the first Antioch church, uh, first Gentile church in Antioch, uh, Syrian Antioch. And from there, they, they were called by the Holy Spirit to go out on a mission. And so they headed for Barnabas' hometown, Cyprus. And so our first major stop is to Cyprus. Keep our eye on the map and look at verse 4 and 5 with me. 
Now the two of them, Barnabas and Saul, they went on their journey by the Holy Spirit, on their way by the Holy Spirit, and went out to Seleucia, which is a port just below Antioch. And they sailed from there to Cyprus, which is southwest of the port, the hometown of Barnabas. When they arrived at Salamis in Cyprus, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogue. And you will notice this is their practice from now on. They'll go to the Jewish, the Jews first, or the synagogues, and then you'll reach the rest. And with them was John Mark from Jerusalem, who was with them as their helper. So they traveled through the whole island of Cyprus, proclaiming the word of God until they came to the city Papos. So if you are with me, we are at Papos. The message of Barnabas and Saul in, in Cyprus must have spread through because um, there's a major incident in Papos that Luke finds it necessary to write it down in his papyrus scroll. And so this is what happens in, in Papos. The, the Roman proconsul or magistrate got news of the message that has been going around here and he too wanted to hear the word of God. And so he sent for Barnabas and Saul. Here in, in our first talk, we're told that this intelligent Gentile magistrate by the name, Sergius Paulos, he wants to hear the word of God. But next to him was his assistant, a Jewish man, a sorcerer, a false prophet by the name Bar-Jesus, also called Elimus. And he tries to block the message. He tried to oppose Barnabas and Paul and stop the proconsul from believing in the message. And this resulted in Saul, who is now called Paul, rebuking him. And, and as we look at this account, there's some irony in the names being used that Luke records. You know, the Jewish sorcerer by the name Bar-Jesus basically means the son of Jesus, but he's nothing like his Aramaic name. In fact, he is the very opposite of Jesus. He, he's, a, he's one who deals with occult and black magic. It's actually a vocation that is punishable by death for God's people. And such is the irony. So Paul turns to this Jew and in verse 10 he calls Bar Jesus this, a child of the devil, an enemy of everything that's right. And by the power of the Holy Spirit he says, and you be blind. And so it happened. The one who should have received God's message, a Jewish man, has turned away to reject the message. Meanwhile, we have this um, Sergius, whose name was Paulus, which basically means Paul. Okay, So we have this Gentile Paul listening to this Jewish Paul, and he came to believe in the message, and he became a follower of Jesus. Look, look at verse 12 with me. This Gentile Sergius Paulus, he saw the miraculous blindness of Bar-Jesus, but he believed not primarily of the miracle or the sign, but because he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. You know, mission is a messy business. It's easy to get distracted. It's tempting to use a different thing to draw attention. But Barnabas and Paul, they were clear that what ultimately saves people is the message itself. And because of the message, the magistrate believed in Jesus. Now we'll continue to see how the missionaries, they try to, uh, they continue to navigate through their missionary journey, uh, but they never lose sight of that central part of their mission, which is the message. 
So as we move on in verse 13, now the missionaries traveled northwest from Cyprus to Pergia and Pamphylia. If you see the map, it goes up where for some reason John Mark, they left them and went home and went back to Jerusalem. So the remaining duo, they continued perhaps on foot to their next major pit stop, which is Poseidon Antioch. Poseidon Antioch is here and is directly, it's not the same as the Antioch of the first Gentile church. Okay, so here um, they, they had their second uh, major pit stop. And again, in their practice, Paul and Barnabas, they first go to the Jewish synagogue to preach the gospel to existing Jews and also to some God-fearing Gentiles. And the message starts to draw more and more people to Paul and Barnabas. And many people believed in the message and received the grace of God. The message of God is being spread out. Uh, further and further. And look at verse 42 to 44 with me. Let me read this for us. If you have your Bible, it would be great to look at it. For two, as, as Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Jerusalem followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them, because they had become believers, to continue in the grace of God. And on the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of God. Again, we see the focus of this mission, which is the message. The message is central, and the message is what draws believers and also to create oppositions. Earlier, we had one believer and one enemy. But now in Poseidon, the believers grew in numbers. And so do the oppositions. Let me read to you what happened in verse 50. But the Jewish leaders, they incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city to set up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. So they shook the dust off their feet as a warning to them and went to Iconium. Now as the believers grew in numbers, so did the oppositions. And this time, the Jewish leader stirs up those with power, and they managed to kick the missionaries out of the region. And this time around, the missionaries did not use signs or wonders to rebuke the opposers. In fact, what they did was they shook the dust off their feet as a warning to the Jewish leaders, and they left. But what does shaking the dust off their feet as a warning actually mean? Uh, verse 46, he, he says this this way that to the Jewish leaders, by you rejecting the message of God, which is first offered to you, you have made yourself unworthy for eternal life. So the shaking of dust off their feet was a warning that by rejecting the message that's first offered to you, you are unworthy for eternal life. And for that, it will, the message will continue to spread but to the rest of the world. It's a warning, but it's also uh, a blessing. Because the rest who hears and honors and believes in the word of God, they start to receive eternal life. Look at what is written in verse 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and they honored the word of the Lord. And all who were appointed for eternal life believed. See how the gospel movement is being shaped by the, the word. 
and those who are appointed for eternal life believe. So Christian missions is kind of messy business. No one uh, is set up for just one specific specific situation. Uh, and if you just pause and just listen to missionaries and their stories, you have read, you're here, you even you may even know personally missionaries who kind of face oppositions and they kind of overcome it. You have also heard missionaries who were there and they were getting kicked away, uh, kicked out because they were lack of visas. But the word of God continues to spread and there's one determining factor about faithful missionaries or faithful missions. It is that they will keep to the message. They will keep to the message to clearly present both the good news and the warning. The good news of eternal life, the warning of being unworthy of eternal life. So Paul and Barnabas, they are well aware of their kind of missionary business. They did this which result in both believing and rejection. And I think this is the same for, for church, isn't it? In fact, it's the same for all Christians. That this is how we should view uh, our lives. That the central of all our messiness is the message of the Lord Jesus Christ that keeps us and uh, presents both hope and warning. And so now they arrive at their final or third major pit stop, which is Iconium, Lystra and Derby. So if you are still looking at the map, we're heading to the third major section. So after they are being kicked out of Poseidon, Antioch, the missionaries that arrive at Iconium and again they go to the synagogue. Chapter 14, verse 1 and 2. Paul and Barnabas, Barnabas, they spoke so effectively that again a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up other Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. You know, so effective was the message that more and more people believed. But so effective was the message that the the oppositions get more and more frustrated. Well, they kind of they didn't get kicked out, so they stayed for a considerable time until a plot was revealed that the opposers are planning to stone them. And so they left and moved on to Lystra and Derby. But by now you have noticed as well, just a kind of a footnote that Paul and Barnabas, they've kind of swapped places. It started off with Barnabas and Paul in the beginning of Acts, but now Paul has taken up the role. And at Lystra, Paul, he did this. He, he was walking and he, he was speaking and he miraculously healed a man who was lame from birth amongst Gentile worshippers. And this is a significant point that Luke wants to bring up because a few chapters back in Acts chapter 3, Peter was doing exactly the same thing. He was uh, at the temple area of the Jews in Jerusalem and he healed a man lame uh, from birth. So in this situation, what we see is that the miraculous act of Peter or Paul is evidence that the the God of the message was with them. And so just as Peter was the apostle to the Jews in Jerusalem, Paul has now become the apostle to the Gentiles in the rest of the world. However, while they're in this third place, the gospel is not received as clearly as what it has been because it's messy business. Oppositions arrived in Iconium and they did what they failed to do in Iconium. They managed to stone Paul 
in Iconium this way. No, you might have found this a bit familiar. Uh, we have this back in Acts chapter 8 where they were stoning um, Stephen and now they have kind of stoned uh, Paul. And we find the journey of them traveling a hundred miles to kind of stone Paul is familiar because Paul himself in Acts 9 was the one that traveled from Jerusalem um, to, um, to, stone, uh, to catch um, Christians and to imprison uh, them. So there we have um, this uh, kind of similar event to reveal to us that indeed the gospel is is being spread uh, and that persecution follows along with it. No difference, by, by the time we see this business of this kind of messy way of uh, journey of, uh, of Paul and Barnabas, it should kind of come to us to this reality that even the best planners in life, um, you can't really plan everything because things change. And even the best missionaries who plans, um, they, they, they move according to how the gospel uh, is being worked in each place that they are at. And here we have that the gospel message gets shaped by, uh, the, the mission itself is, get, is being shaped by the way that the gospel is being received. So from a worldly sense, we focus that as the gospel is being preached, that opposition arise and, and the missionaries have to move. But on another sense, if you are looking from the, from the spiritual lens, that as the gospel is being preached, more and more people are becoming Christians. The oppositions are not able to suppress as fast as how the gospel uh, spreads. So well, after they've stoned Paul, they thought, no, Paul is dead as good as Stephen and they left, but apparently Paul didn't manage to die. And he kind of stood up. In verse 20, he tells us this. You know, the disciples gathered around him. He got up you know, from being stoned and he went back in the city. And then they left for Derby the next day. And this time, without the oppositions, they won a large number of disciples in Derby. And that's where their journey kind of ends off because there's one more thing that the missionaries are concerned about and they decided not to move forward. Just as they know that the central uh, work of theirs is to proclaim the message, the second thing they notice and they realize is crucial is that they need to establish those who have become Christians. And so they start to backtrack to all the churches they have been to and begin to strengthen the new disciples, appointing elders in these new churches, before finally arriving back in Antioch, the ascending church. No, dear friends, I hope none of us are kind of lost in this journey. It's a long two chapters journey that sets the foundation of missions. And, and it, I hope it, it shows that missions is not one kind of easy blueprint of journey. It's kind of messy business. There can be all kinds of noises. There can be all kinds of influence around us. Perhaps to call the messengers to compromise in the message so they get less oppositions or to use um, even other means to get uh, attraction or tractions for the gospel. Uh, but that's not how the gospel is being done. Um, in, in our current world, there is there's a way to say about missions is perhaps we should go out and do as much social work and do a lot of good things in missions. And if there's a chance that we have a sideline, a subtitle that actually Jesus saves you and Jesus loves you, um, but that's not how 
missions has been in Acts, not in this first journey, not in the next three. There's a Christian writer by the name Trevor Wax. He wrote this um, and gave this command regarding missions. He says this, It's not enough to say that mission is deficient if it does not contain gospel proclamation. We ought instead to say that mission is non-existence if our deeds are ever disconnected from the motivation and intention of proclaiming the gospel verbally. This is a pause for us to just think of missions as we look at this. Um, Trevon says this, that missions, some people say uh, mission is deficient if the gospel is not being preached, but Trevon says this, that mission is not existence if at the end of the day the gospel is not being preached. So here are the two focus of Paul and Barnabas uh, that will be repeated throughout the rest of the missionary journeys in Acts. The first is that the mission, church, the Christian mission is rooted, first of all, in proclaiming God's message. And the second is that the Christian mission is concerned with establishing and equipping new Christians so that they remain in God's grace and remain faithful in Christ. And as we do that, oppositions are inevitable. So with that, now you can kind of hang out your shoes a little bit and we move to ask, what is the content of the message that is so crucial that Paul and Barnabas would not let go of it? So with that, look at Acts 13. I'll look at verse 16 to 41 with me on, on the content of the message. In verse 16, we see Paul calling out people to listen. And the starting of his um, proclamation Sounds really similar to his first mentor, Stephen the Martyr. Paul begins clearly with history. And Paul's point is this, that God brings salvation through history. It's God's initiative to make salvation possible. And history is God's way to bring salvation to the world. If you look at verse 17 25, I'll just summarize to you what actually happens uh, in history. Paul points out that God is the active one. God chose people. God chose Israel to review his plan. God rescued them from the enemies. God endured their willful conduct, their sin. God cared for them, fight the enemies, gave them land, provide them judges. The only time that humans were proactive was that, God, you know what, we want a king. So God gave them King Saul. But eventually, God gave them the rightful king, King David, the true king after God's own heart, the one that God will use to ultimately save the world with a promise. So verse 23, it says this, From David's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior, Jesus, as he promised. So what, what has Paul done in this message? Drawing a quick overview of Israel's history, Paul points out that History is actually crucial in bringing God's plan of salvation. Because through history, we recognize a few things. History helps us to recognize God is the one that's always taking initiative. We are never the one that's taking initiative to get into heaven. History shows us again and again, God is the one who takes initiative to bring us um, 
to salvation. Because this is, and this is a confident thing if we do understand history. Because we can see from history and our own lives that we are not good at getting ourselves into heaven. I don't know about you. We are not good with the ability to kind of remove our sinful tendency by ourselves. We are not good with dealing with judgment. If someone can see the whole of our life, we are not good at dealing with death. Left to ourselves, we actually do face a very bleak future. And history is a beautiful thing because God used history to say that He is actively the one that is bringing us back to Himself and saving us. And the second thing about history is that we recognize, you know, Christianity is not an accident. Christianity is not an accidental religion or creator of human intelligence. God uses history to bring Jesus. And in that's the case, Jesus is never an accident or kind of an accidental religious cult leader that, that comes about. He has been foreplanned by God to bring salvation. So Jesus didn't appear in vacuum. And so we do not become Christians by accident. And history points that to us. Jesus' appearing fulfills God's promise to save the world, and he actually explains how we are being saved. So understanding history, um, the way that Paul is trying to bring his conversation into, is to recognize that, you know, our faith, Christian faith, is never built on vacuum. Christian faith is never built on superstition. Christian faith is never built on ignorance. And in this current world, Christian faith is not built on science. Christian faith is built on truth that has been evidenced in history. Let me say that again. Christian faith is built on truth evidenced in history. The truth that happened in history over and over and over and over again is where our faith is being built on as we look to the future that has been secured for us. Now, all this talking might kind of remind us a bit of our Bible overview that all of us are studying really hard and um, trying very hard. And, and you know, our Bible study overview, uh, Bible overview is no doubt very hard work. But let me encourage us that as we go through this hard work, helping each other to, to understand the history um, in the Old Testament up to where we are and, to, and mingle into our history, that we start to know God more and we start to love Christ more and we start to become even more confident of the faith that we first confess about our Lord Jesus Christ. So how are we saved by Jesus? This is the second part that Paul brings in from verse 26 to 43. That I want to kind of zoom in, and this is where I need a bit of help for you to flex your muscles a bit, your brain muscles a bit, because Paul starts to bring in quite a few um, prophecies. And to see, first of all, that this is relevant to us, Paul says this. He says to those people who are listening, you children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles. It doesn't matter if you have um, a Jewish bloodline, so you're linked to the promise, or you're kind of an outsider, a, a Gentile, but you've come to want to know God. This message is for everyone. That Jesus, he has made it possible for us, for you and me, to be rescued from our wickedness, 
from rebellion, from our hatred, from our lies, from our visible, our hidden sins. Jesus made it possible for us, for you and me, to be rescued from decay, from judgment, from death. And Jesus has made it possible for us, for you and me, to receive eternal life. And all this happens through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. His resurrection changes everything. And His resurrection made it possible for Him to now offer to you and me that I can give you eternal life. So look at it with me as how Paul tries to uh, bring that in. First of all, Paul looks at how Jesus' death first fulfills God's word to the prophets. No, Jesus did not come to the world alone or just live a perfect life. He also dies in the hands of innocent men in order to absorb the judgment that we sinners deserve. Listen to this in verse 27. This is what Paul says. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus. Yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. Now as you look at this passage, what it says, by, by condemning Jesus, they fulfilled the, ver- the words of the prophets that they read every Sabbath. What do they read every Sabbath as a, as a Jew? They read the promises of God, that God will come and rescue them. And one of the passages is this, a familiar one from Isaiah 53, verse 4. It says this, God's anointed, He took up our pain, bore our suffering. We considered Him punished by God, stricken by Him, afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on Him, and by His wounds, we have... We're healed. Some of us are familiar with this. But these are the kind of promises that they read and while they were reading it, they have just put the innocent to death. And by that happening, Jesus made forgiveness of sin possible for us. That's the first thing. But death is just one of the stories. The second part of the story is really the great news in verse 32. What God promised our ancestors, He has fulfilled for us, His children their children, by raising up Jesus. No, by the raising up of Jesus from the dead, Jesus has not only rescued us from sin, He's offering us eternal life. This is how it works. Look at this, um, verse 33 onwards, three verses with me. Uh, This is how it works. How resurrection and eternal life is possible for us. Look at verse 33. Paul, in his gospel message, he says this, he quotes Psalms 2, verse 7, and he he put this point, God the Father, he's speaking to Jesus, and he says this to Jesus, you are my son, today I become your father. This is what happens at Jesus' resurrection. At the resurrection of Jesus, this is what happens, Jesus becomes the kingly son that's been promised that has been prophesied in Psalm 2, and that kingly son has authority to draw people into himself and build his own nation. That happens at the resurrection of Jesus, that he becomes the kingly son. And then, in verse 34 to 35, Paul, 
he speaks of how God will fulfill his holy and sure blessings promised to David by raising Jesus from the dead. What has God promised David? For those of you who have been doing your Bible overview this week, it just says God has given a promise to David that through your offspring you will have an eternal kingdom. As we read this, it's actually a quote from Isaiah 55. That in Isaiah 55, it actually says that God fulfills this and in so doing, those who cry out for mercy, those who are thirsty, those who are hungry, those who are food, we are clothes, they cry out and they will be fulfilled. That the mercy of God will be upon them. No, but there's just this one question before Jesus rose from the dead. This promise is great, but who can fulfill it? Which, which man can be a king forever? And the resurrection of Jesus brings that into completion. The promise that God has given, that everyone's waiting but wondering how it will happen, happens at the resurrection of Jesus. And to add to it, Paul gives one more verse. This is also from Psalm 16. He says this. This is amazing. If you look at Psalm 16, it says that the Holy One, whom God will not abandon in the realm of death, even if He dies, He will not decay. Is there any other reason why this amazing message of Jesus? Before Jesus actually resurrects, who can understand? How can a man, uh, a holy one, not be abandoned to the dead? And if he's dead, he will not decay. How does that work? Until Jesus did die, they buried him in the tomb. Well, he, he, didn't, he didn't stay in the tomb and he can't decay. And he was risen from the dead and never to see decay again. And that's when the salvation news, the great news of salvation that God can forgive sin and God and Jesus can offer salvation and escape from decay uh, comes in. Who else in a right mind if you hear to say, you know what, Andrew, I can find a way for you not to decay after you die. Say, that's crazy. Well, you can bum me up like a mummy, but that does nothing to me. Until Jesus comes and says, you even if you die, you will not see decay in the sense that you will be risen again. And he became the first fruit of our salvation hope. And that's what Paul brings out. And because this is so crucial, this is the message that he will not give up wherever he goes, whether it's opposition or whether it's acceptance. And those who belong to eternal life will receive this message. Dear friends, the question for us is this. Have we accepted this message of salvation? Have we repented of our sin? Have we turned to Jesus to ask Him for forgiveness and even more, eternal life? Paul declares this in verse 38. He says this, Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sin is proclaimed to you. Through Him, everyone who believes is free from every sin. Dear friends, this is the message of salvation that Paul has because Christ rose from the dead. Have we come to Jesus for eternal life? This is what Luke writes for us, verse 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and they honored the word of the Lord and all who were appointed 
for eternal life, believe. This is the message of Paul, and this is the message of salvation. But the warning comes with Paul as well. Those who reject in verse 40, uh, 40, 41, will continue to face God's judgment because they will have counted themselves unworthy of eternal life. Repenting of our sins, humbly coming to Jesus is not an easy thing. It requires faith, but faith doesn't come out of a vacuum. God has given us history, truth, evidence in history, so that we can believe. Just like the intelligent pro-counsel, he didn't believe blindly, he believed because the, the message was amazing. And so that is the message. As I kind of want to round up this time, we've gone through the whole journey with the apostles, a long journey in fact, we've looked at the crux of the message. There's just one thing that I want to briefly look at, which is the response. I want to bring us just very briefly at some of the response in this event, and then I'll ask, what is our response to the message? As we look at the journey, remember we first arrived at Papos. There was a miracle done. There was a message proclaimed. The proconsul believed in the message, not because of the miracle. Well, he saw the miracle. The miracle kind of stopped the, the enemies from obstructing um, the message. But it was the amazement upon the message that ultimately bring Sergius Paulus or the Gentile Paul into Christ. But the opposite happens at Lystra at the end. A miracle happens. Paul tries to tell them about God. But in the end, they were drawn to Paul by the miracle. But when the message comes forth, they reject and they didn't want the miracle and they end up stoning Paul. The sign that first drew them did not save them. It is the message and it's not a sign that will ultimately save people from death and from judgment. In a world where it is easy to have banners that first talk about good works or, or healing or miracles and the subtitle is Jesus loves you and he can also save you. Paul's is totally opposite and it says the message is Jesus can forgive sin and he can save. And all the other thing comes along with it. So that is the response that we see in the, in the message. The second one really is that as the message is proclaimed, there's these two groups, isn't it? There will be those who respond. There will be those who will reject. So the conclusion for us is this. Where are we as we hear the message? Are we hearing it rightly? And are we responding to Christ rightly? And those who have responded to Christ rightly, Paul has these last words for them as he went back to strengthen the disciples. He says, For you who do believe in Jesus, let me give you um, the right expectation as you are a Christian here. I wouldn't guilt the lily, I'll tell you the truth, that you will have many difficulties if you're a Christian. Paul's closing words for them in verse 22 is this, that we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Paul doesn't speak of hypothetical suffering. He speaks of the reality of Christian life on this side of life. 
that is not a bed of roses. As we want to live it out, we will struggle with making difficult choices, costly choices. As we tell people about Jesus, we will face oppositions. They will not be avoidable. But a promise will stand that those who stay on will enter the kingdom of God. Dear friends, as I kind of come to a close in this kind of really long journey of Acts 13 and 14, the question really for us is this, that this is the message of salvation. Will we receive it? And will we hold on to it and proclaim it? Should we pray? Oh Father, what an amazing journey Paul and Barnabas took on their first missionary journey. And the message is clear that Christ is able to forgive our sins. Christ is able to offer us eternal life. Help us to grab it, O Lord, and help us to cling on to it and help us to proclaim it. For the glory of Christ, Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at bcpc.sg.